Morning, everybody. Welcome. My name is John Hamry. I'm the president here at CSS. Congratulations. You made it through the heavy rain and you're here and it's, we're going to reward you with an excellent speech. And uh, I look very much look forward to listening to Minister Kono. Um, a word of just preparation. Uh, we're responsible for your safety while you're with us. And so if you hear a voice that says we need to evacuate, I'll ask you to follow my directions. We'll go out through these doors behind me. I'm not worried about the defense minister. He's got guys over here that are going to take care of him. But So I'm going to take care of all of you. Uh, and we'll go down to the, to the street level, uh, go over to National Geographic, and I'll pay for everybody's tickets. There's a very good show on right now, and I'll take you there. Nothing's going to happen. Um, it's a real privilege to have Minister Kono with us. I, I just have to reflect, uh, the first time I went to Japan when I was in government and visited the self-defense agency, and it was in a kind of a decrepit set of old buildings, and we had a lot of difficulty trying to find somebody that was willing to take on the leadership role. Now things have changed and Japan has reached out to one of its premier political leaders in Minister Kono to lead the, the defense ministry at this crucial time. It shows how profoundly over the last 20 years attitudes have changed in Japan and here in the United States. We welcome this much, much stronger Japan on the security stage. It used to be that they were strong on foreign policy and they always were but they're now strong on defense, and it's a very welcome thing for us. We're very fortunate that uh, a man of uh, this stature is leading the defense ministry at this time. This is the most complicated period that I can imagine, and we look to Japan for both intellectual and operational leadership in Asia, and we're very fortunate to have a man of this talent, this depth, this commitment uh, to this alliance who is leading at this time. So could I ask you with your very warm applause, please welcome to this podium for his presentation, Minister Kono-san, please. Good morning. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you very much for the kind introduction. Um, <clears throat> it's good to be back in Washington, D.C. Last time I was here, I was a foreign minister. This time I came back as a defense minister, maybe next year as a prime minister. <laughs> well, originally I came to Washington one year after Patrick Ewan. Uh, I went to Georgetown. It was a golden age in Washington. Georgetown won the NCAA championship, and the Redskins won the Super Bowl. I don't know what happened to Georgetown basketball this season. I don't see the name in top 25, and the Redskins, I don't see them. But uh, now you get the uh, Washington Nationals, and uh, Washington Withers with uh, Rui Hachimura. So I think Things change as time goes by. Well, there was a Soviet threat during the Cold War. Now it's gone, and now we, are, we have to worry about Chinese military expansion. So let me uh, 
talk about the alliance. I prepared a very comprehensive speech, but uh, it will probably go on for about three hours, so I will have to cut it very short. And uh, Dr. Green could probably spend the semester talking about the alliance at Georgetown. Well, 60 years ago, in January uh, 19th, 1960, Japan-U.S. Security Treaty was revised, which marked the beginning of this uh, Japan-U.S. alliance as we know now. For more than half a century, this alliance has fulfilled the strategic interests both Japan and United States. It's also important to point out that this alliance is based on common values um, shared by two liberal democracy. Allow me to highlight the tremendous progress we have made in advancing our security cooperation within the framework of alliance over the years. Security cooperation with the United States really started when we formulated uh, first guideline for Japan-U.S. defense cooperation in 1978. A few months after that, the Air Self-Defense Force and U.S. Air Force conducted their first ever bilateral exercise. Two years later, in 1980, the Maritime Self-Defense Force joined the RIMPAC for the first time. And the following year, in 1981, the Ground Self-Defense Force conducted its first bilateral training and exercise with the U.S. Army. We have come long way since then. Over the years, bilateral training and exercises have contributed in enhancing interoperability, sustainability, and combat readiness between self-defense forces and U.S. forces. They represent our two countries' determination and concerted efforts to strengthen the alliance. They also demonstrate the deterrence capabilities of the alliance to the region and to the world. Japan and the United States will continue to make efforts to improve bilateral training and exercises. The first guideline was formulated during the Cold War, and its main focus was on the response against an armed attack on Japan. The end of the Cold War brought about a period of uncertainty. The Persian Gulf War broke out in 1990, and the first North Korean nuclear crisis in 1993. These factors along with tensions over Taiwan Strait, contributed to the revision of the guideline in 1997 that allowed for a possible and yet limited role by self-defense force in situations in areas surrounding Japan. The following years were met with even greater uncertainties, notably 1998 North Korean ballistic missile launch over Japan, the terrorist attacks on September 11, 2001, the war in Afghanistan, and the Iraqi war. Also in September 2010, a Chinese fishing vessel 
illegally operating in waters around the Senkaku Island collided with two Japan Coast Guard ships. The arrest and detainment of the Chinese captain resulted in diplomatic standoff with Beijing. And on March 11, 2011, Japan was hit by an unprecedented disaster, the Great East Japan earthquake and tsunami. Following this development and to reflect the changing security environment of the 21st century, the government of Japan and the United States undertook a major revision of the guideline for Japan-US defense cooperation in 2015. The new guidelines account for seamless bilateral cooperation from peacetime to contingencies and also expands the scope of the alliance to include the protection of both regional and global security. It also addresses cooperation in new strategic domains such as cyber and space, which were not mentioned in 1997. Another new component is the establishment of alliance coordination mechanism that will improve bilateral coordination for responses to any future contingencies. New guidelines also incorporates enhancements in information sharing that includes defense equipment and military technology. Implementing new guidelines will further strengthen the deterrence and response capability of the alliance. In addition to the release of the 2015 guidelines, a new set of laws called the Legislation for Peace and Security was approved by the Japanese parliament September 2015. The legislation will enable Japan to respond seamlessly and with greater flexibility to a variety of contingencies. The legislation will also allow for the protection of U.S. forces and their military asset. It also includes enhancement in the provision of supplied services and logistical support to the U.S. forces under the AXA. With these development, the scope of our security cooperation with the United States has expanded more than ever before. It's been said that an alliance that can help each other build a stronger bond. This is true. The deterrence capabilities of Japan-US alliance is stronger than ever. As you can see, the alliance has evolved over the years and have adjusted to the challenges of the changing security environment. Japan and the United States have become closest allies in the world. I think I could say that. The alliance is now stronger than ever, and as a defense minister of Japan, I can actually feel this every day. So now, let us take a quick look at the current security environment. The overall view is that certain states are seeking to change the regional and international order in their favor and are expanding their sphere of influence. This is resulting in the rise of interstate competition in all fronts, politics, economy, and military.
The world is becoming increasingly dependent on technologies that run through the cyber domain. Technological advancement are fundamentally changing how we fight. Contemporary warfare is fought in combined domains, not only on land, at sea, in the air, but also in space, cyberspace, and electromagnetic spectrum. As we turn our eyes to geographical area around Japan, we see that it's an area with countries with advanced military capabilities in both quantity and quality. It's apparent that countries in this area are enhancing their military capabilities and are aggressively expanding their military activities. The Indo-Pacific region, which includes Japan, is a region rich with political, economic, and religious diversities. Countries in this region have differing views on security and threat awareness. Accordingly, a cooperative regional security framework, just like NATO, is yet to be institutionalized in this region. As for the Korean Peninsula, the Korean people have been divided for more than half a century, and the military forces of the ROK and DPRK continue to lock horns. Also in this region exist issues concerning Taiwan, and situation in the South China Sea remain volatile. And we cannot overlook the violation of our territorial waters around Senkaku Island three times a month on average, and the daily entrance by Chinese government vessels into our contiguous zone around Senkaku Island. We have strong concerns over China's continuous attempt to unilaterally change the status quo in the East China Sea, particularly around the Senkaku Island, by forceful means such as a PLA Navy and Chinese Coast Guard, which is a paramilitary organization. Meanwhile, in the South China Sea, China has been conducting military activities near the Scarborough shore with the use of long-range H-6K bomber, among others. China has expanded and increased their air and maritime activities in this area by conducting large-scale exercise and naval display, including the aircraft carrier Liaoning. China has pushed forward with the militarization of both Purcell and Spratly Islands by installing military facilities such as batteries and by constructing a 3,000 meter long runway that could land fighters and bombers. China has also constructed harbors and radar facility on these islands. China continued to engage in unilateral coercive attempt to alter the status quo in South China Sea and to create the fates accompli. Japan cannot and will not overlook such aggressive behaviors by China. China's action in both East China Sea and South China Sea are nothing less than assertive and coercive attempts 
to overturn the international order. If we overlook Chinese attempts to alter the international order and let China continue undermining international rules and norms, the negative impact on these actions will not only be limited to Indo-Pacific region, but will stretch around the world. China is also expanding and increasing military activities in the Pacific Ocean and in the Sea of Japan. For instance, in 2008, Chinese combat vessels were spotted operating in the Pacific Ocean and in the Sea of Japan for the first time. This number has multiplied each year since 2012. In addition to this, Chinese military aircraft began flying over the Pacific Ocean in 2013 and over the Sea of Japan in 2016. Japan's air self-defense force have to scramble against Chinese aircrafts more than 600 times a year now. In July last year, Chinese and Russian bomber flew together from the Sea of Japan towards Tsushima Strait, which was something we had never seen before. Asked about China's naval advancement into the Pacific Ocean in 2017, the Chinese Defense Press Secretary stated, Japan simply needs to get used to it. We believe that such action by China will continue onwards. China's H-6K bomber can carry long-range cruise missiles, CJ-20, that put Guam well within its strike range. This and the aircraft carrier Liaoning, among others, uh, advancing into the Pacific Ocean. This means China now possess the capability to break through the first island chain that runs from Okinawa to the Philippines. China has warned the US and its allies against the deployment of US intermediate range missiles to the East Asia, sometimes with threatening retinue. Pointed to the fact that China also has missiles, they always insist their missiles are purely defensive. Long and middle range missiles such as CJ-20 and DF-21 ballistic missiles constitute the core of A2AD capabilities. China has been increasing those types of missiles as much as they want because China is not a party of the INF Treaty, which was signed during the Cold War. Recently, China announced that country would not participate in the New START negotiation. We need to continue our diplomatic efforts, even with Russia, to get China engaged in a framework towards armed reduction of new strategic weapons alongside United States and Russia in the post-INF period. You may frown at me proposing to work with Russia, but by looking at Russia from the east side of the country, however, we can see that we potentially share mutual interest with Russia in not few areas in dealing with China. We need to pay attention to China's debt trap diplomacy as well. 
China's loan lending practice under the Belt and Road Initiative has put a number of countries, such as Sri Lanka, Maldives, Pakistan, Djibouti, Vanuatu, and others into a so-called debt trap. Speaking from our own experience, we are fully aware that freedom and democracy cannot be built in a day, especially in Asian countries, where they have long history and complicated social structures. Myanmar and Cambodia are in the process of advancing their democracy. At this stage, the problems in these countries are drawing attention. But if we hesitate to lend our hands to them, citing the problems, they may be dragged into debt trap by China. As a result, they will be back to authoritarianism. We must increase our commitment to the Pacific Island countries that are a vital part of the Indo-Pacific region. As a part of this effort, I will host a multinational conference in April in Tokyo with defense ministers from Pacific Island countries which own military forces, as well as the partner countries connected to the region, namely the United States, Australia, New Zealand, France, and the United Kingdom. Just last December, I visited Beijing and met with my counterpart, Defense Minister General Fei. It was the first visit by Japanese Defense Minister in 10 years. At the meeting with my counterpart, I directly conveyed our strong concern over the frequent activities by the PLA in East China Sea and urged China to take positive steps to improve the situation. This spring, we are planning to welcome President Xi Jinping as a state guest. We want to extend our heartfelt welcome to President Xi for his visit. China needs to work harder to improve the situation that I just pointed out. Otherwise, we may find a difficult environment for the visit. International norms, such as freedom, democracy, and legal order have been built up and maintained by the countries including Japan and the United States and others overcoming difficulties. If China makes light of the international norms, they have to pay the cost. We need to create the environment where the cost will be imposed on China in cooperation with the international community. In response to China's increasing military actions, the self-defense forces are strengthening capability to closely and cons consistently monitor the surrounding water and airspace of Japan. For example, we plan to deploy ISR-focused small-sized patrol ships and to also introduce a new type of destroyers that can be operated with fewer personnel and can serve multiple purposes, such as minesweeping. We also plan to deploy F-35Bs and will make the necessary refurbishment on ISMO-class destroyers for these aircrafts to operate from. By doing so, we'll be, we will be able to defend our airspace with greater efficiency 
while securing the safety of our pilots as they operate in the vast waters of the Pacific Ocean, where few airfields are made available. We will defend our airspace with a procurement of 150 F-35s that will include F-35Bs. Fiscal constraints and decline in population due to low birth rate present limitations to our defense budget and human resources. We removed the restriction on what women can do in the self-defense force. We are also working on improving work environment for them. In Grand Self-Defense Force, the first ever female anti-tank helicopter operator was assigned in 2017. In Air Self-Defense Force, the first female fighter pilot in 2018. And in Maritime Self-Defense Force, first ever Aegis Destroyer Commander was assigned in 2019. We also decided to pave the way for women to be assigned to submarine crews last year and are now preparing for onboarding them this year. Japan and the United States share and support universal values such as democracy, freedom, rule of law, and respect for human rights. Japan is determined to take action to promote these values. TPP, Trans-Pacific Partnership, was supposed to be the new rules for the Pacific region by the like-minded countries sharing the values, such as Japan, US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand, so forth. We need to bring it back as TPP-12 in the near future, hopefully. As I mentioned earlier, the security environment surrounding Japan is one of the toughest in the world situated in a geopolitically important location and based upon shared common values. The Japan-US alliance is one of the strongest in the world. The alliance also serves as a platform for US military readiness in the Indo-Pacific region. Approximately 50,000 US troops are stationed in Japan. Kadena, Yokota, and Iwakuni are the largest U.S. Air Force bases located in the Far East. Yokosuka is only U.S. naval facility that can repair aircraft carriers outside of the continental United States. The only overseas U.S. Marine installations are situated in Japan and are located facing the East China Sea. Japan will continue to ensure and support for deployment U.S. forces based on Japan-U.S. security arrangement. The self-defense forces will work together with the United States military in protecting Japan's national security, as well as securing peace and stability of the region. The Japan-U.S. alliance, now stronger than ever, is capable of deterring any threat and is ready to meet all the future challenges. The alliance will serve to protect universal values and will spread them widely to the world. Professor Madeleine Albright, former U.S. Secretary of State, once said, all work that is worth anything is done in faith. As I did so in my former capacity as foreign minister, I will give everything that I have and with faith to my work as defense minister of Japan. 
Thank you very much for your attention. Senior Vice President here at, I'm Mike Green, Senior Vice President here at Asia and a professor at Georgetown. Uh, when he was Foreign Minister last year, uh, Konosan spoke at Georgetown uh, to a packed uh, uh, audience, uh, completely at capacity room of students on a Friday afternoon. It was really nice outside. And the first thing he said was, it's Friday afternoon. It's warm outside. Why are you all here? <laughs> uh, but we know the answer uh, because um, Kono Taro gives us a, um, a, a deeply impressive but also very human uh, understanding of um, where this alliance is going and where Japan's role in the world is going. We have a few minutes uh, before the minister um, uh, begins his official set of meetings with the administration. Um, I wanted to ask, uh, first, uh, minister, um, you know, in your role as defense minister, you're in con constant contact with the enemy, meaning the opposition party in the press. <laughs> um, <laughs> And I'm, uh, I've been doing this long enough to remember that there was a certain backbencher in the 1990s in the LDP who would ask very difficult questions about host nation support and UN dues, and that backbencher was named Konotaro. <laughs> and my, my favorite part was that the foreign minister at the time was your father. Um, so you, you know very well some of the dynamics of alliance politics in the diet. And I wanted to ask first, um, what worries you the most in terms of the domestic politics in Japan about our alliance, I mean, I mm -hmm. agree with you and the polls show the alliance is, by almost any measure, stronger than ever, mm -hmm. but it depends on democratic debate. So it what is. do you focus on within Japan right now? Well, in order to keep the alliance strong, it's very important to get the support from the local community, uh, especially where we have US bases or bases for self-defense force. So we need to talk to the local community, get them understand uh, situation. Back in 1990s, there was no Chinese aggression, but situation is different. So it's easy to criticize US forces in Japan for being too noisy or too you know, troublesome or all those things. But it's important to have US forces in Japan ready for just in case. So we need to get their understanding, but we also need to provide an environment where they can train their soldiers and officers. So that's something I really need to uh, convey to the local community. And do you find that um, people understand uh, what you're describing? Well, I guess uh, more and more local politicians in Okinawa uh, uh, see the necessity of what I'm trying to convey. Mm -hmm. So uh, I, I think, yes, people see the situation has changed. So in the US, uh, the Chicago Council on Global Affairs and other polls show uh, almost unprecedented levels of support for US forward deployments and bases in Japan for a commitment to defend Japan if Japan is attacked. The poll numbers are quite good, and in the Congress, support for the alliance is quite robust. But we are uh, going to begin, uh, in the not-too-distant future, a new negotiation on host nation support. Mm -hmm. 
And um, there are um, voices, uh, including at the top, uh, in the US who are questioning whether Japan is you know, taking a fair burden, uh, paying enough, taking on enough missions. Um, for an American audience, you know, sort of in our political context, what are the messages that you think have to be understood in that context? Well, I think we need to, we cannot uh, stress enough the importance of uh, forward deployment capability of the United States in Japan. And, uh, well, look at the aircraft carrier in Yokosuka. Uh, if we, if U.S. doesn't have Yokosuka, it has to go back all the way to San Diego and uh, how many days it needs. So I think U.S. and Japan are working pair for Indo-Pacific. It's not, it's not like United States forces in Japan just there to protect Japan. It is a linchpin for the stability and peace in the Indo-Pacific region. So families <clears throat> would have their um, uh, sailors and Marines uh, deployed four times as much. Mm -hmm. We'd be defending ourselves in San Diego instead of the first island chain. It's really um, mm -hmm. uh, a, a, a narrative about uh, what it does for our interests. Um, one of the areas of um, uh, if tension or, 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 or um, dissonance a little bit right now is um, the question of uh, uh, Japanese procurement of equipment. Mm -hmm. um, the foreign military sales, FMS, purchase of U.S. equipment has gone up much more than um, I think Japanese industry or the diet expected. Um, and so there's clear political pressure or expectation mm -hmm. that there should be more you know, Japanese-made equipment, more Japanese participation in industrial work. Um, but at the same time, this stuff is more expensive. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, it's more logical to, to do it jointly, uh, to develop interoperability and share resources. Um, your predecessors told me this was a big headache for them. How do you think about this question when you have big uh, procurement decisions coming up in the future and a lot of money at stake? Well, we are buying a lot from United States, but if you look at what we are buying is uh, Aegis Ashore. We need it to protect Japan from North Korean missiles right mm -hmm. now. And F-35s, that is a state-of-art fighter jet to protect our airspace from aggressor nearby. So there's no alternative mm -hmm. to that. But in the future, I think it is important for us to get the defense industry going. Um, there, when I was a minister in charge of cutting the cost, cutting the government uh, spending, I was going after the price of ammunition. Uh, the self-defense force buy ammunition much higher price than our national police organization, and I was going after that. But uh, I realized the certain part of defense industry in Japan is very vulnerable. Mm -hmm. Only one small company making certain part, and uh, a lot of things depend on this small part made by fa father and mother and only son. <laughs> and uh, if they say they quit, we, we don't get that entire weapon system. So we need to pay more attention to the industry and we probably need to help them uh, with something. So it's important to get 
expensive weapons from the United States to protect Japan. But in the long run, I think we need to have some kind of defense industry strategy to help us. One of the, uh, over the last day and a half, the Japan Institute for International Affairs and CSIS have had a discussion, the 26th actual, uh, 26th annual uh, uh, meeting on the US-Japan alliance and uh, stock taking. And we had a lot of discussion about how to network the alliance. You mentioned it as well. How can we take a bilateral hub and spokes concept mm -hmm. at a time when the balance of power is shifting to get more friends, more partners? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we had a, a kind of a pool where everyone voted which country is the best country we should start working with. Some people said India, some people said Korea, some mm -hmm. people said Taiwan. Um, in your role as a defense diplomat and building those relationships, where are some um, opportunities you see to strengthen uh, partnerships on security with countries that are not you know, obviously in the U.S.-Japan alliance, but closely aligned? Well, obviously, uh, our first mate is South Korea. Uh, their location and uh, their relationship with us. Well, it's kind of unfortunate we have a little political uh, issues between Japan and uh, South Korea. But uh, my counterpart as a defense minister or my former counterpart, foreign minister, they see the situation very well and they understand. So it's a natural that our US, Japan, and South Korea work together as the first line. And then we can have uh, Australia, New Zealand, those democratic country, well, India uh, is also, a, well, India is the largest democracy and so we can work with them. Do you spend a lot more time in developing those relationships than, you certainly spend more time than defense uh, ministers or defense agency director generals 10 or 20 years ago, mm. but is it more than you expected? Is this a big part of the job? Yes, I also tell my chiefs of staff to go abroad at least once a month to get connections stronger. I think we cannot do things alone. We need to create a web of uh, defense cooperation. Mm. So it's important to not only the defense minister, but uh, deputy ministers and chief of staff, and they all go and uh, meet people and create uh, cooperation. So it is important to have a joint exercise mm -hmm. with you know, many countries as possible. So I have a really important question from my students at Georgetown. Mm -hmm. uh, every year we do a simulation exercise and students have to decide whether they want to be the defense minister or the foreign minister. So the question is, which is more fun? <laughs> <laughs> well, defense minister has much bigger budget, but uh, it comes with bigger headache. But uh, when I was a foreign minister, I said, I need an airplane so I can you know, go abroad easily. Now I get the helicopter to F-35. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> Well, I it's, thought you were going to say prime minister is more fun. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> but um, as Donald Trump likes to say, we'll see. Uh, so um, please join me in thanking the defense minister for joining us. Thank you. We're going to go right to a panel. I'm going to invite um, three colleagues to join me on stage. Um, to reflect on what the defense minister has shared with us, uh, and um, also on this day and a half of candid um, exchange we've had about 
about the future of our uh, security relationship. <clears throat> um, so uh, joining me on stage are uh, well-known um, uh, intellectuals and thought leaders to all of you, but uh, let me introduce them. Sheila Smith, uh, Senior Fellow for Japan Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations, and 1990 All Japan Japanese Language <laughs> Debate Contest winner with me, um, our claim to fame. Professor Satoru Mori at the Hosei University, who is um, one of a, um, a group of rising thinkers about Japanese security and strategic issues. And uh, Ambassador Kenichiro Sasai, who is the um, head of Japan Institute for International Affairs and served with great distinction and humor uh, here in Washington as ambassador. Um, We'll go till about noon, uh, excuse me, until about one, till about one o'clock, and then we have um, uh, uh, lunch and reception if you'd like to stay and talk to uh, the, some of the Japanese delegations or others. But let me, let me um, pick up on uh, one theme, which is alignment. I, you know, uh, the defense minister said the U.S.-Japan alliance is the strongest it's been. I think, you know, as uh, policy practitioner and as a historian, I think that's probably right. But alliances are complicated. And so I wanted to focus on alignment, um, starting with um, Ambassador Sasai. Um, how well are the US and Japan aligned on, on big geopolitical issues right now? Mm. I'm thinking China policy. You know, Prime Minister Abe is engaging in rapprochement right now with Xi Jinping. There's some people, not many, but in Washington saying, are we on the same page with China? There are more complicated relationships like Russia and Iran. How well are we aligned as allies on these big geopolitical questions? Well, thank you, uh, Michael, for asking that important questions of uh, common concerns, I would say, between Japan and the United States. That is how to cope with the uh, rise of China. And as uh, Minister Kono said, that uh, it is obvious that uh, we have to cope with all this uh, challenge coming uh, from China. And for that, I think Japan and the United States is pretty good in, in, in addressing the issues and as uh, Minister Kono laid out, the serious challenge in, in historical perspective, which what happened over, say, four, five, six years time frame. And I think there is increasing recognition that we have to update, uh, not in terms of capacity to address all this challenge, but also uh, to uh, to plan ahead yeah. what we need to do. That include uh, contingency issues. Of course, uh, there, uh, there was uh, a great concern, not only on, on, on the Senkaku issues, but also uh, some of the possibility, I would say possibility, around Taiwan, especially against the background of what's happening in Hong Kong and so forth. So uh, in terms of regional uh, security architecture, I think we are pretty in good shape to address all these questions, including uh, some of the things you asked the Prime Minister on the networking. Defense uh, Minister? Yeah, yeah, sorry, yeah, <laughs> Defense Minister. I still think that he's a foreign <laughs> minister and my boss. But, uh, I, uh, so uh, I think the question is that uh, when it comes to bilateral uh, challenges, uh, you know, uh, uh, Minister Connor said that there is going to be a a discussion on the button sharing, mm -hmm. and, and that includes obviously a host nation support. And, uh, and we watch uh, what's happening uh, between Washington and Seoul on the host nation support debates. And also, we recognize uh, some of the debates uh, uh, between the uh, United States and Europe on the issues. 
uh, are we going to face the same issues? Uh, but uh, there is some nervous, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, feeling here and there. But I trust that uh, our our host nation support is basically uh, the one uh, we have been doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. So we can't really compare. Uh, the level of support the Japanese government has extended to the U.S. Uh, with the allocate or even Europe. So, Sheila, let me turn next to uh, how well we're aligned politically. Um, and, uh, you know, it's interesting, the, the polls have shown pretty robust support in Japan as well for the alliance. I think Yomiuri, uh, for example, Yomiuri Shimbun asked the question, do you trust the U.S. to do the right thing? And although support for the alliance is high on that question, we're not doing great. We've dropped, I think, 30 points right. over the last few years right. in terms of how trustworthy we are. Right. So it's a sense of dependence, and we need the alliance, but are they right. trustworthy? Um, is is host nation support negotiation, Okinawa, other things, going to blow us up, or, uh, <laughs> or are we going to manage it? It, well, that's a great question. I mean, I think all of us, especially those of us here in Washington, uh, look at this conversation and we're anticipating that this could actually be very, very politically difficult for the Prime Minister of Japan. I think one of the things that we've watched over the last several years is a rather unpredictable U.S. conversation about our leadership, whether it's at the very top. I think, again, the Abe cabinet has managed that very well through the, the leader-to-leader -leader dialogue, and we've overcome a little bit of the anxiety on trade. I'm a little bit confident, I should only say a little bit confident, that there'll be a certain amount of finesse in terms of managing, similarly managing, host nation support. Timing is a little bit on the US-Japan side uh, because the host nation support formal negotiations don't start till next year. So in a certain way, I think there's a, there'll be an impetus to hold on to watch our election uh, outcome to see how to manage it best. But I do think this is a year of transition, so and when your question about larger political alignments, um, you know, we, we will have a, a big election in this country. I think in our workshop, many of our colleagues from Japan expressed some, some concern about how things would come out and especially how that would affect our larger geopolitics, geostrategy rather, and in our, our views of alliances. I think the thing that worries me about the American conversation um, is that we are beginning to hear more rhetorical questioning about the value of our alliances, even though our polling suggests Americans think that they are where, very where important. Are you, where are you hearing the? So I think you know when I go out and speak, and there are many mm -hmm. other people that I've had conversations with here in the audience. We go out to speak. I we get the question more often, in the in the kind of phrasing <laughs> that the president sometimes uses, like are we you know are are, are allies taking advantage of us, mm -hmm. or do we still need to be there? And I think there is a sense among those of us who study the alliance and support the alliance, that we need to make the case more forcibly about the value of this partnership particularly, but the value of alliances to the American people and to our future as well. So um, as with the, um, the Mongol invasion, Japan's benefiting from Korea getting the first hit <coughs> this year and in, in the very reportedly very, very astronomically high demands right. uh, in the uh, special measures agreement host nation negotiations with Korea and Japan and the U.S.-Japan alliance have a little more time to think it through. <clears throat> um, but uh, what, what, is, what is part of the answer? Should Japan be spending more? Um, should we be packaging it differently? Is it mostly about how we explain it to the American people? Where, what's, what's, where, how does this all end? Probably all of the above. But mm -hmm. I think it's, 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 we should be clear. Host nation support, this is a five-year agreement. They always go up. 
in the number and the amount of money. Um, but it has also become increasingly our habit in the US-Japan partnership to frame it in terms of our strategic ambitions, how we help each other. Um, and I think that's the missing component this, mm -hmm. this time around. So I think there's going to have to be a certain amount of effort, both by policymakers, but also by those of us outside of government, to make sure that our strategic the strategic value of the alliance to us right. is the framing for what we expect Japan to do. I think the Abe cabinet has also been very successful in pointing out that they need to up their own military capability. And so the investments that were discussed in our workshop and the investments in Japan's own ability to not only defend itself, but also to contribute to broader regional partnerships and regional capacity building, I think that's another piece of the puzzle as well. The, um, the burden sharing debates in US politics emerge when the threat doesn't seem as serious, generally, mm -hmm. you know, uh, in the 70s or right after the Cold War. Um, but the threats are pretty serious right now, and a more rational discussion would be based on what do we have to do to make this alliance more effective. And some of that may be quantitative increases in Japanese spending or in host nation support. Um, the defense minister did an elegant job laying out the transformational change in the U.S.-Japan alliance over the last few decades. Um, but uh, as you all know, um, the other guys are moving faster. Um, Paul Giara pointed, earlier, pointed out earlier in our discussions that since Prime Minister uh, Abe came to power, the PLA has created an entire Japan Maritime Self-Defense Force in new surface vessels. That's the, that's the scale of the challenge. <clears throat> so um, uh, we probably have to think about um, how we structure this alliance, not just how much we spend. <clears throat> One of the questions of alignment, I'd say, is operational, Mori Sensei. I'm, I mean, um, we are not uh, necessarily fit to purpose. We are not joint and interoperable. Uh, we are not pooling resources for joint development of weapon systems or new technology. Our command relationships are kind of ancient. You know, there is no joint operational command in Japan. It's not clear who the operational commander would be in a crisis um, right now, at least to me, because U.S. forces of Japan are not a joint and combined operational, uh, operationally capable command. So there's some big questions about how we're organized um, and I wonder if you could address what you think uh, should be done and what you think might be done uh, in Japan in the coming years to address those uh, gaps. Um, I think um, we have to first, first of all appreciate the strategic environment that Japan is facing. Um, when we look at some of the operational requirements, I think it's um, important to start with the recognition that there is this sort of a defense innovation competition that is happening between the United States and China. Um, I think the application of advanced technologies uh, for military purposes has become a sort of a competition between the United States and China. And um, in this context, I think there are at least four different pillars on which uh, Japan and the United States needs to work on to cooperate. Now, one is the weaponization of domestic technologies. Second is uh, devising new operational concepts. And third uh, would be sort of reorganization of the com command and control structure. And fourth would be human talent pool uh, development for sustaining advanced capabilities. And I think in the, these four areas, uh, the United States is already uh, advancing uh, defense innovation efforts. And I think Japan really needs to cooperate uh, and coordinate when it comes to um, developing, uh, making development and advances in those four areas. Yeah. Yeah. The, you know, Prime Minister um, Abe uh, significantly relaxed the arms, uh, three arms export control principles. Mm -hmm. um, 
created the new advanced technology and logistics agency, mm. uh, Atla, and, um, uh, but, but we're not doing that much. Mm. We're not. Mm. Um, uh, what has to be done so that we're actually d developing systems together or um, uh, creating what John Hammer here calls a federated defense, where at least we're developing systems that are interoperable more? Mm. Is, it a, is it a question of incentives for the commercial sector? Is it, is it uh, opposition in the diet? Um, what, what do we have to do to, to start moving in that direction you're describing? I think um, supporting the private sector is one thing, but I think also uh, interagency or multi-agency uh, cooperation to actually uh, have a strategy to advance those export, arms export is something that is necessary. So it's not go going to be only a sort of a defense ministry effort. I think there needs to be other agencies that need to be, for example, embassies and foreign ministry probably have to coordinate with the defense ministries to identify where the demands are and, and what is necessary to actually make those exports more um, effective and viable. I, guess. I mean, yeah. you're, what you're describing, um, says the former NSC guy, is an NSC, mm -hmm. Conte-led effort, mm -hmm. uh, all of government. And I suppose there's some uh, possibility now because under uh, Mr. Kitamura, the new national security advisor, uh, the Ministry of Economy, Trade, and Industry is now oh. finally inside the NSC process. So maybe there's an opportunity to, to do what you're describing. Um, when you think about the, the, the scale of what the PLA is deploying, and also, as the Defense Minister described, the um, persistent uh, expansion of uh, China's military presence, um, uh, and also the missile threat which is um, uh, considerable. China's been building ballistic missiles to threaten intermediate range, shorter range for Taiwan, uh, a hundred year roughly since, mm -hmm. uh, since the 1990s. Um, we're now in a post-INF world. Mm -hmm. One of the um, uh, issues that's uh, surfaced recently, uh, which will command a lot of attention in both capitals and in the media is, you know, what would um, a US or Japanese capability look like in this new environment, um, uh, we could do nothing. We could, Japan has talked about standoff, strike yes. capability uh, for denial, deterrence by denial within the first island chain. There's discussions about the need for deterrence by uh, punishment, the deep strike capabilities. All of these are debated uh, in, in, in Japan now, interestingly, um, uh, in some quarters. Um, where, let me let me start with you, Sheila. But where do you where do you think we should be going? And then the more extreme version is we need to deploy tactical nuclear weapons <coughs> in Japan and Korea to deal with the North Korea threat. So where do you see the debate going? Where do you think we should be going? So where I think we're going to go is a very careful conversation that is going to start off with the political problems, <laughs> and that is, of course, we all we all and in this audience in particular can imagine them that this is difficult. Where we're going to deploy capabilities how and when we're going to synchronize both the Japanese desire for greater strike, right, um, and, and the United States desire in the more meta kind of context of the region. How are we going to synchronize those two sets of decision making, I think is an important conversation for the alliance to have. We don't necessarily have to overlap completely, but we certainly have to understand each other's priorities when we think about it. Um, but, you know, the political problems are, are going to be basing they're going to be budgets. They're going to be the typical kinds of political challenges that we have to face. But I do think it's an important moment for the US and Japan to develop a common understanding of where they see risk 
and where they see advantage. So it can't just be a conversation about capabilities enhancement. It has to be what, where and how we can deploy new capabilities, because I think there's a general consensus around this idea that capability enhancement is needed. Um, but I think that there, there's still that careful conversation probably among, among policymakers to be had about where Japanese feel more risk of deployment and more benefit versus where we see risk. And, and they may where not you be mean the same. Geographically, where or well, geograph functionally? Functionally, both. both. Uh -huh. I think the geography, I think the, the politics of that are pretty, pretty obvious. And also, Japan is more proximate to where we worry, right, about conflict yeah. emerging. And so, again, because this alliance hasn't had to worry about these problems in the past, I don't think it's a full conversation. It's not an element of our strategic dialogue that we've had in, with much care. We talk a lot about capabilities but where we're ready to use and in what way our concepts about should there be tension, if that tension escalates, how best to handle it. Not in the kind of bureaucratic consultative way, but really really taking on this question of risk. In the it's region. a different Japan than yes. the one we studied at Tokyo University those many years ago. Right. The, if the debate is about not in my backyard yeah. and real estate rather than the doctrinal right. question of whether right. or not Japan should have strike capability. That's yeah. a very different. It's a very different conversation. In some ways it's a bigger headache. Yeah. If you're in the defense ministry, I mean, it's a very different yeah. world. Implementation is hard and we should recognize yeah. that, but we shouldn't just drop everything into the bucket of domestic politics. It's right. hard, right? We, we really have to get at the core question of what do we want to see and how do we see those capabilities really affecting the overall efficacy of our alliance coordination. And that's, mm -hmm. that's a new space, I think, for the U.S. and Japan. Morisan, where do you come out on this? Um, deterrence by denial capability possessed by Japan is probably something that is necessary. But at the same time, um, as you mentioned, you know, China's ever-expanding military capabilities. And if they, if the, for example, countries like China uh, has an opportunity to sort of probe and um, uh, continuously uh, or rep repetitively uh, make uh, some sort of incursions, uh, not only at the gray zone, but, uh, but if there is an ever a conventional level uh, conflict. Uh, simply denying Chinese objective is not going to probably be enough for them to actually stop that kind of behavior. So what you probably need is a deterrence by punishment uh, capability uh, possessed by the United States or deployed by the United States uh, in the theater. So, so you're talking about an adjustment to what, in the early 80s, the US and Japan agreed would be the roles and missions and capabilities, where Japan is the uh, shield, the US is the spear. We're now talking about Japan having some little spears, <laughs> or maybe or maybe daggers, yes, uh, yes, but yes. something new. Yes. Do we need, I mean, it seems to me that's one more reason why the command and control relationships have to be really thought oh, through, because oh. <clears throat> most of our alliance, the concern was on the Japanese side about Makikomarirono, about being entrapped in a US war in the Middle East, oh, not the Middle East, in Vietnam or Taiwan or Korea, most of the politics frankly, were about how to put in place policies that would inoculate Japan from being entrapped. Um, what we're talking about is a Japanese strike capability, even if it's deterrence by denial, so, you know, Senkakus or the, the water and air near Japan, that nevertheless gives Japan, would give Japan an ability to have a little spear. So then it's the U.S. that may start worrying about entrapment. Um, which is what we worried about with Korea in the 1950s and 60s, which is why we created a joint and combined right, command. Right, right. Kachi we go together. Yes. So it seems to me that this debate inevitably is going to fuel the discussion about command and control and jointness and interoperability, which is going to be hard politically too, but also inexpensive, but very useful as a deterrent in itself. What do you think? Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, you know, it is obvious in terms of our threat in 
coming from China and also North Korea. And the level of their armament is serious. Are we really uh, matching up? I think that's the issue. And there, uh, of course, I think overriding force of the United States is essential, will continue to be there. But we can't simply depend upon the United States solely on the deterrence part of the functions. And we on our part need to step up. That's why I think uh, we need to increase the budget, defense budget. Uh, look at uh, how much you know, Chinese is spending on, on the defense uh, and uh, increase, increasing uh, missile capacity and so forth. So at least uh, you know, Japanese needs to think its own capability to show that uh, we are not simply totally depend upon the our friends and allies the United States, but at the same time, it is obvious that Japan cannot do it only by itself. And a larger strategic capability needs to be in place by the United States. So there has to be combined effort by the United States to challenge the Chinese you know, expansions in larger contexts, which might include United States effort with Russia and China combine, and that also include how we would go for uh, strategic force stability, and uh, that will be also in including how Ch you will be getting China on board on the post-INF mm -hmm. debate and disarmament issues. And that one is still, we are not quite clear because China continue to develop their, their missiles and even uh, with nuclear weapons. But here, mm -hmm. what we are talking about is not necessarily all this, uh, you know, INF uh, uh, weapon with missile. It's basically conventional right. weapon. I think <coughs> some people misunderstand. Right. And we're not talking about, uh, uh, you know, all this missile uh, with nuclear weapons. And, uh, and, uh, but that, that, that means that uh, we don't have to depend upon the United States de nuclear deterrence anymore. Right. That continue to be essential, possibly more essential, when we don't know where U.S. Uh, North Korean discussion would be going. Yep. It makes, it puts a premium on um, thinking through escalation control right. together and a lot of things that right. we <clears throat> have not formally built into the alliance mm. uh, structure. Mm. Uh, the two plus two, the alliance coordination mechanism right. are, are um, functioning well and are adding mm. some new mechanisms, but they're not designed for uh, that kind of, I don't think they're designed for that yeah. kind of thinking through escalation control in a very deliberate way. Um, you know, the thing in, in Minister Kono's speech, his speech is always great. It's always a pleasure to hear him talk. The thing that jumped out at me the most was when he talked about democracy. And the U.S.-Japan alliance, I, it was not in his prepared remarks, <laughs> but the U.S.-Japan alliance will, um, so I didn't write it down exactly, but will play a role in spreading democracy. <clears throat> um, I happen to think that's absolutely right. I know there are some people in Tokyo who think that's right. It's not normally the way our alliance has functioned. You know, Japan has always had a little bit of an alibi uh, with, uh, with these questions of democracy and human rights, or put another way, a little bit of a more nuanced policy. Um, I'd be interested in your reactions to that. We'll start with you, Ambassador. Since you, were once, <laughs> you were once Director General of the Asia Bureau. Yeah. Um, so, you know, are, are, we, is, are we in a kind of ideological contest now where the US and Japan are are going to begin operationalizing our thinking about democratic norms? Yeah, I or is think it's just so. rhetoric. Uh, no, no, no. I, no. I think this is a serious issue yeah. because 
uh, when we talk about uh, Chinese uh, threat, uh, that includes obviously a different uh, kind of system values in place. And uh, uh, when we try to defend all this, uh, you know, liberal democratic order in the regions, and uh, obviously we need to be concerned about uh, Chinese capacity uh, to tell the others, you don't have to democratize. We could go on with the technology and controlling the people. As far as the economy gets going, it's all right. That's not necessarily our principles and values. And so when the democracy is challenged, I think uh, we need to say that it's no good. I think actually these days, that's my understanding, mm -hmm. that the Japanese government uh, to be talking about more straight about uh, uh, democracy in Hong Kong and so forth, although it, uh, China doesn't appreciate uh, it is a domestic issue to them. But domestic issue doesn't mean that the others can't talk about it. So. I mean, in some ways, Japan is in a good position mm. to be the messenger because right now the U.S.-China relationship mm. is so full of friction, and mm. the Chinese narrative is that the CIA created these protests, whereas Japan is in a period of warming relationships, at least superficially. And so if, if this becomes a priority or part of the discussion, yeah, I think I mean, the Chinese can't ignore that. I think he, it, yeah, I mean, it, 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 you know, talking about the democracy doesn't have to stop right. all this uh, talking on the corporations and where uh, we could do together, I mean. With China. Yeah, with China. I'm talking about China. Yeah. Yeah, since um, you know, Japan and the United States are both pursuing what we call the rules-based order, I think this uh, notion of rule of law and democracy uh, needs to be a part of our policy. Uh, but at the same time, I don't think we should make it a condition, uh, or regime time should not be made a condition for engagement. Mm -hmm. I mean, for example, it's not that if, if we are facing a non-democratic regime, we're not going to cooperate. I, I don't think it should be that way. But nevertheless, I do think we should speak out about the uh, um, necessity and the value of uh, rule of law and democracy and so forth. So that's my take. So in that sense, I think US and Japan, when we're talking about rules-based order, um, I think it would not be um, justified if we could, didn't uh, raise this issue about uh, these uh, universal values. You think this will resonate for the diet and public? Mm, good question. Um, I think, you know, again, I think the more abstract kind of we should be working together on common values and, you know, the abstraction works very well, uh, in, in especially when you listen to diet members in, in Japan and certainly on, in our Congress. Um, but I, I, I do think we, we've got a two-tiered set of questions question here. One is China's challenge, right, to democratic practice and how we are going to manage that. And I do think there's a lot of room and we should make it a priority in the U.S.-Japan relationship to make sure we understand each other's approach. So that's Hong Kong. That's how we celebrate Taiwan's democracy. It's how we work together to ensure that we're, we're aware of where we see the need to push and speak up and where we can, as you said, you know, emphasize Japan's opportunity with the Xi visit, for example. Um, when it comes to the rest of the region, of course, you know, there's, there's broader ways in which we can continue to support democratic practice, good governance. Uh, we can get a little bit more functional in the way we go about it. We don't always have to hit countries over the head with what America thinks about democracy or what Japan thinks about democracy. So there's ways in which we can strategize, and I think we actually have been over, over the years strategizing. But, but here's the thing. We may not be able to predict when we have to respond. I, I, would, I would venture a guess that very few of us in this room thought we were going to be where we are with Hong Kong. 
not that long ago. So th things might surprise mm -hmm. us. And so I think it's a good part of the U.S.-Japan partnership mm -hmm. to make sure we're ready mm -hmm. when situations arise to understand mm -hmm. and listen to each other in terms of how we respond. Mm -hmm. it'll, be, it'll be driven by our domestic politics, but I think it's a piece of the puzzle we haven't yet fully explored mm -hmm. in the partnership. When I think on um, our allies and partners in the region uh, and uh, with whom we work closest on advancing democratic governance, um, you know, I would put uh, Australia, Canada, um, and then some of the Nordic countries at the top. Right. Um, and honestly, I'd put Korea ahead of Japan mm -hmm. in terms of work on civil society, yeah. women's empowerment, governance. Right. Um, just having some grassroots experience a little bit in some of these areas. <clears throat> um, it should be a core part of what we do, and we should operationalize it. And there are different aspects. There's, as you point out, Sheila, there's, you know, there, there, there's the question of a human rights uh, disaster in mm -hmm. Xinjiang or, right. or something like Hong Kong. And can the U.S. and Japan um, cr create a um, set of declaratory policies quickly? Mm. And that's important. Yep. Uh, it's, it's costly diplomatically, but if, mm. if, if, the U.S. and Japan do it together with European countries. You know, we start creating a right? bit. Yeah. It's not a complete deterrent, but a bit of a wall against escalation of right. human rights violations. It, it's important. And the second area, um, uh, frankly, would be: um, Can we build, as you were saying, gov democratic governance? Can we right. support civil society? I think it will be more and more important in this alliance because it is related to um, Belt and Road. Mm -hmm. And uh, if you're gonna help countries choose their own path without coercion, mm -hmm. uh, resist debt traps and all of the neo-colonial aspects of Belt and Road, recognizing there may be also some right. developmental aspects that are good. Mm -hmm. If you're gonna do that, it's not just enough to train workers to um, evaluate projects. Mm -hmm. You want a functioning press, you want a parliament, you want accountability, right. transparency, right. you want to shine the light. So I think this will be a growth area in yeah. the alliance. Mm -hmm. And it won't be exactly the way we do it with Australia, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, but I think what we're hearing on the panel, it's, it's going to be more and more important. And it's striking that the Minister of Defense uh, mm -hmm. flagged that in the discussion yeah. about geopolitics and balance yeah. of power. Yeah. I was just going to say, it doesn't all have to be done by government either. And I think it's that's precisely. where, yeah, that's where you're flagging the civil society voices that can be brought to the table, maybe in a more robust conversation. I'm thinking here of, of Tadashi Yamamoto, for example, and JCIE. That's the work that JCIE did, has, did for decades, right? And, you know, that's the kind of organizing principle, I think, that Yamamoto-san was really good at pointing out. We are flourishing democracies, not because our states tell people to be, right. or, but because we actually are, and, and making sure that our civil society and actors there, there, are there, there, there is vibrant. a civil society, which I, that's probably why Korea is more active in some of these areas, right. because of a larger civil society yeah. space. Um, there is, a JCIE has an active uh, commission in, in, in Japan looking right. at how to do more in this space. Uh, CSIS, at the end of the month, will be hosting a summit at Sunnylands mm -hmm. of um, uh, thought leaders from the region on how to do more in this space. Right. So I think it's um, it's something to focus on in the alliance. And the right. defense minister flagged it, so it's yeah, it's a strategic issue. Let's um, let's turn to the audience. Um, I think we have microphones. We do. So if you have questions uh, for the panel or or, or or questions for the defense minister that the panel can answer for him, <laughs> um, uh, please go right ahead. Put your hands up. We'll ask you to identify yourself briefly and ask a question. Up the distinguished-looking gentleman with a golden tie. <laughs> Thank you very much, Mike. Ben Self from the Maureen and Mike Mansfield Foundation. Mike Mansfield always described the U.S.-Japan relationship as the most important bilateral relationship in the world, bar none, and we celebrate that. So I was really delighted with the remarks 
the foreign minister made. Um, also, within that, singling out that to defend the liberal international order, we need to defend the norms, and we need to prevent China, in partnership with each other and with others, uh, other like-minded states, from violating those norms. So I completely endorse that. But in his litany of complaints about Chinese behavior, he singled out, or he mentioned, a number of activities that involve Chinese uh, maritime vessels and aircraft entering Japanese uh, exclusive economic zone or the Pacific or the Sea of Japan. And the U.S. Uh, holds with a freedom of navigation principle. We sail within uh, China's exclusive economic zone. We fly aircraft for intelligence gathering purposes. And I worry about a gap between the U.S. and Japanese perceptions of what norms China is violating and how we can uh, be fair and make sure that we're not doing things that we're complaining about China doing uh, and that we don't leave Japan out complaining about China in ways that the U.S. isn't going to back them up. So that's one area I'd like your thoughts on how we can more closely align the U.S. and Japanese litany of complaints about Chinese behavior so that the Japanese aren't complaining about things that the U.S. is actually saying China has every right to do. Thank you. All right. <laughs> that's, a, that's a hard question. Yeah, hard <laughs> questions. Right. Good question. I, I, I kind of agree with you uh, because, uh, you know, we appreciate the United States, for example, operating uh, freedom of na navigation in South China Sea. But if you ask the question that uh, could Japanese self-defense force do it, are the American, uh, you know, uh, military and, uh, and services doing? I think we haven't really come to that yet. But increasingly, I think Japanese self-defense force is making effort uh, to expand its theater of operation and level of operation and going together with the United States and around the region. And so uh, I think uh, it's possibly a matter of time that uh, we are moving slowly but steadily. But when it comes to our complaint on the uh, Senkaku Island and so forth, uh, I think uh, there is a more, uh, I would say, understanding on the part of the United States, uh, not in terms of policymakers, but in larger audience, that uh, this is not simply a small island. This is a symbol of, to, uh, symbol of defending friends and allies, and uh, if the, the, we would allow China to invade into this small island, that would mean that uh, the commitment of defending Japan is simply a paper tiger. And so that needs to be understood. And I, I think uh, there is a more sort of a cohesion of understanding compared to, say, 10 years ago. Yeah, I, you know, the, 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 I always, you know, uh, Mike McDevitt always reminds us that freedom of navigation operations are not a military tool, but a diplomatic one. And so we should keep that separate. And I, I do think it's important to understand when, as, as Ambassador Sasai said, if Japan's self-defense force attempted to do this, it could, it could be interpreted by the Chinese as a <laughs> military maneuver as opposed to a diplomatic assertion of freedom of navigation. It's not something that Japan does. It's interesting our European allies are more comfortable with freedom of navigation principles and operations. And I think that's an important 
important area to, to think about. But I, there's other things that we, when it comes to, I don't know what your litany includes, Ben, but I, something just popped in when you were talking about our complaints about Chinese behavior. Some of those complaints are specific to each of our countries, but some of them are shared by other countries. And one of the things that has been striking to me lately is the extent to which China uses detention of our citizens as a political tool, for example. Um, and so, you know, Japan um, has people who have been detained uh, in China, and there was this very famous case recently of a Japanese academic who, for no discernible reason. Um, um, but there's Australians, there's, there's people outside, and, and many of us in the think tank community wonder whether should we go to China? <laughs> should we not go to China? We're not quite sure what the, what the scenario is. Is this being used to make a point on certain things? And Canadians certainly feel like it is, given the detention there to Canadians in, because of the Huawei um, uh, issue. But, so I think there's areas here where the complaints are shared among a number of our countries where we should certainly coordinate, speak, and I'm sure our governments are doing that. But it is something we should not be silent about. So the complaint may have justification beyond. Um, and I think that's something, obviously, we should keep in mind. So not just freedom of navigation principles, but some of these other very specific aspects of Chinese behavior where I think there's a lot more common ground and common concern about the implications of what this is. It's a very intriguing question. Um, I think it's probably a pretty easy argument to make, not that Beijing would accept it, but a pretty easy argument to make, as Sheila points out, that freedom of navigation operations are not coercive tools designed to change the status quo, um, whereas the PLA and um, right. Coast Guard deployments in the East China Sea are part of this larger pattern of gray zone coercion, but are clearly designed to coercively change the status quo. Freedom of navigation operations are asserting a right uh, without respect to sovereignty or anything like that. The harder case would be surveillance flights. Yeah. Um, and uh, uh, I guess at the end of the day, what I would say is, uh, we're at a point in U.S.-China relations where convincing China we're doing the right thing is not the point. We just have to convince our allies, and I don't expect any of our allies are going to complain about surveillance flights, um, which are necessary precisely because of this massive PLA military buildup. Um, uh, interesting question. Uh, right, right up in front here. Uh. Thank you very much. Emmanuel Pastrage from the Asia Institute. Uh, so the issue of budgets for defense of specific weapon systems or specific weapons is, of course, a critical issue. But it seems, especially in competition with uh, China, in the long term, uh, the, the most basic issue is uh, uh, basic science and education in science. And this has been a major concern for us in the U.S. and a little bit in Japan as well, uh, because if you don't, if you're not on the, say in the case of space, if you're not on the front in terms of quantum computing, there's a serious risk that although you may have these things in space, you may not be able to control them if the other side is able to be more advanced in basic science in the, in the immediate application thereof. I'm curious what your thoughts are on this issue. Well, uh, thank you very much. I think that that, that is a uh, very important issue uh, for all of us. Uh, you know, in, in Japan, uh, there is uh, increasing awareness of this competition in the basic science, which is uh, relevant uh, to also uh, security, and, and especially in the high-tech area. The, you, you know it. But uh, uh, do we do the same thing uh, as the United States is not doing? Uh, try to control 
the inflow of the students uh, from China. And uh, actually, my understanding is that some of the Chinese are uh, trying to come to Japan because they cannot really come to the United States. So uh, sooner or later, I think uh, uh, we might face the same problem. If there are too many Chinese you know, uh, in, the, in the classroom, and then people might begin to debate that mm -hmm. uh, uh, what, what, are we secure in terms of uh, uh, letting Chinese studying properly. And, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, mean, I don't think that all the Chinese students are the agents of the government, but, but uh, I think there could be more concern coming out. It doesn't mean that uh, we could uh, exclude all the Chinese. I think that depends. So it's a debate on U.S. campuses now and, and, and in the Congress and elsewhere. Um, how about in Hosei University and Japanese universities? Mm. The professor from Hokkaido University, Sheila referenced, was, um, was, was taken in for tea or whatever by the Ministry of State Security. Mm. Has that changed the debate on campuses in Japan and among academics about academic exchange with China? Um. I think it did uh, raise the awareness among Japanese academics about um, you know, this, this nature of the regime. The, the perception has, I think, dramatically changed uh, because of this incident. Uh, has it affected academic exchange? Um, I think it has a chilling effect on the part of more scholars uh, rather than students, I think. On the part of the scholars, I think uh, researchers and scholars specializing in Chinese affairs are now being sort of dissuaded from um, going into China because of this detention happened without clear uh, reason. Um, picking up on this concern that is uh, arising uh, that Ambassador Sasai mentioned, I think what is probably important is to sort of identify which areas uh, you know, in the graduate uh, institutions where you want to actually restrict uh, access, for example, those dealing with critical technologies and uh, sensitive data, I think the United States has already taken measures to sort of limit uh, Chinese students from uh, studying in certain, certain uh, disciplines and areas. I think a similar sort of uh, uh, measure might be necessary on the part of Japan as well, but what is important is that you have to sort of delineate and you don't do a sort of a wholesale bound, obviously. And so that kind of a very measured uh, uh, response is probably uh, also necessary on the part of Japan. For Hosei, I don't think uh, it doesn't, that has that kind of you know, uh, discussion about taking special measure that hasn't happened yet. But I think um, if, if uh, this technological competition becomes much more severe, I think this will become a much more acute issue. You're, you're teaching a course on nationalism in, 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 at Georgetown. You have I students from did. China, Japan, and Korea. It's, it's, it's nice having that range of views, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, actually it was great. Um, and these are small seminars, they're graduate seminars. And then my, at last fall I taught my course on Asia's nationalisms and I had a large number of, of proportionately maybe 20, 20, 30% were Chinese students. Um, and you know, it, 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 it's not about the day-to-day -day of policy, so what we're discussing here, but it was about the sweep of 20th century, trying to understand the evolution and dynamics of nationalism across Asia in different national contexts. And we had a fabulous conversation about how do you get taught history, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, I had a Taiwanese student in the class as well, which you can imagine was really fun. Um, but it was amazing to me what a rich conversation we had. Um, and so I think one of the things for me as an educator in the classroom, but also for all of us thinking about this strategic challenge with China is we shouldn't stop being who we are, open, 
innovative, competitive. And I think rather than see every technological challenge in terms of the Chinese challenge, I think we ought to see it about what do we need to invest in? What do we need to do better? How do we not lose our edge, whether it's the United States or Japan? Um, so I think one of our strengths is still who we are, and we shouldn't lose sight of that, whether it's in the classroom or as we mm. think about long-term strategic yeah. competition. In the back there, I see a hand. Near you, Ben. Hi, Kevin Mayer, former of the State Department. I had a question about how you see the alliance evolving in the near future. You know, we've come a long ways. In the old days, Japan could provide bases. Then you could do rear area support and PKO. Now you can do collective self-defense. Most analysts would say, looking at the China threat, the only way to respond effectively to the overwhelming numbers is to move beyond interoperability to true networking and integration of capabilities, just because of the overwhelming numbers the Chinese have. And that, that really means integrated fire control. And that's very difficult, but is politically, is it something that Japan can do in the near future to respond to China? And will that be reflected in your efforts for integrated air and missile defense or your efforts on developing the, the future fighter to replace the F-2? And the reason I ask this now is I see a tension in Japan continuing. Some voices recognizing we have to be integrated and truly networked. Some others say, no, Japan needs to develop its own capabilities and things like unique data links that, that run against the concept of integration. So I just wonder how you see this playing out in the near future. You want to say yes, this? Yes, yes. <laughs> um, I think in terms of uh, integration, um, when we're talking about, for example, situational awareness, we probably need to um, have ISR platforms collect data and fuse those data. Uh, so data fusion would probably be something necessary. And if that were to happen, the technological implication is that uh, Japanese and uh, American uh, cyber resilience standards will probably have to be harmonized to be able to you know, actually exchange data on that part. On another note, um, I think uh, when it comes to jointness, um, I think at the very heart of this multi-domain operation concept is the integration of command and control uh, within the respective forces. And uh, there, I think, uh, my own understanding is that uh, the uh, services really have to integrate uh, C2 so that sensors and shooters are connected to a single network. And this will probably have to happen on the US side on the, and also on the Japanese side. And the joint operational commanders uh, will probably have to uh, co co coordinate and cooperate uh, to be able to integrate. I am not quite sure. I don't really have an answer about the right mix of um, Japanese uh, development versus joint development. Uh, but as this uh, F2 replacement uh, program is already happening, um, we have uh, developed already uh, certain core technologies uh, involving uh, the engine and the radar and the weapon bay, for example. Those are some of the major technologies forming the uh, F2 replacement program. And uh, th for those technologies, I think Japan should actually pursue uh, its own development. But there are other components. Uh, I think it has been reported that the tactical data link system will probably be adopted from the US system. So uh, it's going to be a mixture. Uh, I don't have a sort of a clear-cut answer about what the ratio should be, but uh, the core development model is what I think would be the uh, best or optimal uh, option for Japan. The politics of this are, are different from the politics that Jill and I studied um, you know, those many years ago. Um, my sense, anecdotally, is that when you talk to a US Navy lieutenant or a US Air Force major, 
or their counterparts in the JAZZ or the JMSDF, this is the direction they all want to go. They, they, they're up for it. They know it's necessary. Um, they're trained to think in those terms, unlike an older generation that was not as proficient in coalition warfare concepts. Um, so that's not the problem. Maybe the three and four stars are a little bit of a problem. But I don't think, I think the emerging generations in both militaries are ready to go this way. Mm-hmm. I don't think the public opinion is a problem, to be honest. Yeah. I mean, public mm-hmm. opinion polls show a lot of support mm-hmm. for the alliance in both countries. When, um, uh, you know, when, when, when Japan's new midterm defense plan talks about uh, uh, cyber and space and all these other things, the pushback uh, from the opposition parties or from the media is, is not that significant. I mean, the most significant pushback was that the U.S. left the INF Treaty, not the idea of standoff weapons. So I'm not sure the popular opinion is, or public opinion or media is as big a problem. Probably the biggest challenges to this are bureaucratic. It's corporate interests and a way of doing defense industrial collaboration that's, you know, maybe a little tired. Uh, bureaucratic interests within agencies. Um, and, uh, and so a lot of it may come down to leadership. Um, but uh, uh, the, the, the geometry of this is not un- insurmountable, I think. You know, my, my, back in the Neolithic age, when you and I were <coughs> studying in Tokyo, none of this was conceivable, I think, almost, right? We were all kind of like, oh, can we get the exercises to be combined? <laughs> can, can, can we, like, you know? So, so we have moved a lot, and nobody knows this better than Kevin and, and others in the room who've worked on these issues over the year. What's striking to me is we've largely moved in mission-specific areas, so BMD to the island defenses, right, to uh, now as we talk about strike. Um, obviously, if it's, 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 you know, the Japanese SDF strike, the spear, <laughs> that doesn't necessarily need the kind of integration that a larger kind of conventional strike would require. But, but I think this is going to come out as missions are developed, as capabilities are enveloped, as Morisan pointed out. I think what we're not going to get is a blanket political decision that the alliance is maybe going to look like former NATO, right? Or it's going to look like stand up like the USROK, combined command structure. It's going to develop its structure around the missions that we see where you need joint decision making to be in real time and and conducive to the capabilities and technologies that we're developing. And so I think that would be my answer. It will probably be piecemeal whether it's additive or not, and it's sufficient for the commanders in the field to, to, to do what they need to do remains to be seen, but I, I don't see it being a big blanket reorganization of the alliance from the political decision-making side down. So um, we can discuss this and other topics further over there, where we have a little bit of light uh, fare, I think, yes, and drinks, not alcoholic. Um, <laughs> and uh, let's do that. But for now, um, thanks for joining us, and join me in thanking our panel. Thank you. Thank you.